Test, test, test. Can you hear me? Can you hear me whispering from the internet? Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the eyes? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hiring can be hard. It can be super, super expensive and very painful if you get it wrong. I certainly have had that experience multiple times. I've made a lot of mistakes. And I am not eager to repeat any of them. So I try to do as much vetting as possible now on the front end. Today, with more qualified candidates than ever, but certainly more noise than ever, employers need a hiring solution that helps them find the right people for their businesses without wasting time, without wasting money. LinkedIn Jobs provides just that. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you specify that you're looking for, so you can quickly find and hire the right person. They also look beyond work skills, so collaboration, creativity, adaptability, to connect you with candidates who match your business perfectly. They have nearless, endless business-specific data points that help them to massage this, and that which can help you to find the best fit. LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other insights that help LinkedIn paint a better picture of potential candidates. It's no wonder that great candidates are hired every eight seconds on average on LinkedIn. That's pretty wild. Every eight seconds. So find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on LinkedIn. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim for more details. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off your first job post. Let's check it out. LinkedIn.com slash Tim. Terms and conditions do apply. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. I've been talking about FreshBooks for years now, the all-in-one invoicing payments and accounting solution. Many entrepreneurs I know, as well as many contractors and freelancers I work with all the time, use it all the time. So I get to see FreshBooks on a weekly basis. FreshBooks makes it super easy to track things like expenses, project time, and client info, and then merge it all into great-looking invoices. FreshBooks can save users up to 200 hours per year on accounting and bookkeeping tasks. I don't know about you, but I like to do as little of that as possible, so 200 hours is a lot of hours. FreshBooks is always releasing new features that make running your business easier. And here are just a few of the major upgrades they've made in the last 12 months alone. Number one, they've redesigned the time tracking feature to create a more intuitive time tracking experience. Number two, they know just how frustrating bank reconciliation can be, so they've automated bank reconciliation removing the pain. Number three, they've added ACH bank transfers. That means you now have an even faster way to collect payment from your clients. It's easy to see how FreshBooks can grow with your business and also help your business grow. It just gives you more time to focus on growing the business as opposed to running the business and the admin stuff. They have plans to match your needs no matter the size of your business, from the basic to comprehensive, from small to big, and it all starts at just $15 per month. Right now, they're offering it my listeners, that's you guys, a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks. You can try it out with no credit card. No credit card is required. Just go to freshbooks.com slash Tim and enter Tim Ferriss, that's two R's, two S's, in the how did you hear about us section. 
That's freshbooks.com slash Tim and enter Tim Ferriss in the how did you hear about us section. Check it out, freshbooks.com slash Tim. Well, hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to sit down with world-class performers of all different types to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, etc., that you can apply and test in your own life. This time, we have a slightly different episode. I do not claim to be a world-class performer, but it is a Q&A with yours truly. Long ago, not that long ago, I tested a fan-supported model earlier in the year in place of sponsors, but I ended up reverting back to ads. It's a long story. If you want to read about it and the findings and so on, you can just go to tim.blog forward slash podcast experiment. But after the experiment ended, I offered an additional live Q&A with supporters, people who've been paying every month to support the podcast as a way to say thanks. And that is the audio of this particular episode. Cover a lot of topics, abundance, mindset, balding. You may have noticed that I am rather bald these days. And uh, the process, getting there, what was that like? How I think about building a legacy if I think about it at all, how to improve verbal tics, Lyme disease, cultivating gratitude, the grieving process, my morning routine, that's morning, M-O-R, not M-O-U-R, morning routine went on book deadline and much more. I do mention a book that I was working on at the time that I've since canceled, which was ironically enough, circularly enough, a book about saying no. So I said no to the book on no. And uh, that's really about it. One housekeeping note, there were a few small glitches in the audio, which is always a risk of live Q&A, but we cleaned it up and should be a-okay to listen to. So without further ado, please enjoy this very wide-ranging episode with Tim Ferriss. (laughs) First and foremost, thanks so much to everyone for attending If you are attending this live, you are a small and elite force of supporters who chose to support the podcast and my other activities in the short-lived fan-supported experiment. So thank you for that. And we're doing a bonus live video Q&A just for that group. And that's you guys. So thanks so much. And I'm excited to do this. I am working on a new book. I am going booze-free from Monday to Friday evening, and then I'm allowed to have a little bit of booze, which I do use for writing. I try to follow the Ernest Hemingway, write drunk in my case, only partially drunk two nights a week, Friday, Saturday, and edit sober. So I write drunk, edit sober, that's Hemingway. Mine is a little more constrained. And today we're going to do live questions. And we'll also do questions that have been submitted by all of you. I have a few pages printed out. I've selected a handful that I'm going to tackle. And we'll go back and forth. So we'll do 20 minutes of submitted questions, and then 20 minutes of live, 20 minutes submitted, etc., back and forth. The wine may affect my perception of time. So we'll see how that goes. Let's just jump right into it. Question number one is from Justin. You mentioned verbal tics in your last Q&A. Did you always speak as well as you currently do? Answer, no. If not, what are the things you did to improve, improve? See, here we go. It's just the placebo effect of this half glass of wine that I've had. (laughs) What did you do to improve your extemporaneous speaking? That's a hard word. 
both on the podcast and Q&A sessions like this. Number one is record yourself. This is true for skill improvement, whether it's sports-related, language-related, that could be primary or secondary or tertiary language. You need a record that you can analyze. So record yourself talking. That could be over dinner with friends. It could be in an interview format. It does not have to be for publication. And that will highlight many of the habits that you have, which could be words or phrases that are used for fillers, like, like, you know, like, you know, is another one. Or, uh, let's see, uh, would be one. Let's see. So was one of my favorites. And there are words that you may use as crutches or very frequently. I used pretty, the adverb pretty. That's pretty good. That's pretty bad. That's pretty expensive. That's pretty this, pretty that. Uh, one of the ways that I forced myself to address that specifically was by adding fucking after pretty. So whenever I said that's pretty I was obligated to say fucking expensive. That's pretty fucking irritating. That's pretty fucking whatever. And that mental hijack of sorts, that interrupt, helped me to tone down my use of pretty very dramatically. Uh, writing helps to improve your speaking. If you, for instance, develop the habit of identifying sentences that are trying to do too much and breaking them into multiple sentences. Looking at transcripts of yourself speaking is very helpful. Those are a few of the remedies that come to mind, and we all have things to work on. But there are generally some low-hanging fruit that you can tackle right off the bat, and it starts with recording and or looking at a transcript. Next question. I have no idea how to pronounce this. Mikkel Sijene? Naval recently did an epic tweet storm on how to get rich. What would Tim's answer be on how to build wealth? I think I would generally agree with Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. And I'll paraphrase, certainly don't mean to speak for him, but I select projects based on predominantly skill acquisition, skills I'll develop or acquire, and relationships that I will either foster or develop from scratch that will transcend the project I'm working on. This is very important because what I'm trying to ensure is that I can win over time even if the project fails. So when I choose different projects, I'm looking at opportunities that will help me to develop relationships with people who hopefully I would enjoy spending time with, who are awesome at what they do, who I could work with for my entire life. And that's certainly a Naval-ism. If you wouldn't work with them for 10 minutes, don't work with them. Or if you wouldn't work with them forever, don't work with them for 10 minutes, is one of his maxims, so to speak. Something along those lines. And I, and I tend to agree with that. Uh, symbolically, more than literally, of course. And <clears throat> what that allows you to do is, over time, to accumulate skills and relationships that can be applied to many different things. And when you develop relationships with, let's just say, 10 people who are all A-list capable in their field, A-listers tend to know other A-listers across industries. So you don't need to know a person in every industry. If you know one really incredible, say, designer, meaning designer for web applications, they will know 
other A players in the 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 stack, so to speak, related to developing a a product. They may know also A tier investors who happen to specialize in the space and so on. If you know a top tier photographer, say, who works in fashion and travel, they will know then A tier players who are models, who are agents, who are publicists, who are fill in the blank. Uh, and that is to say, you don't need to collect 100 business cards in your pocket to build a fantastic network. You really just need to develop relationships with people, A, you really like and who, who like you, spending time with you, say over wine or meals, and uh, to cultivate those over time. And part of the way you do that is by having them overlap with your projects or be involved with opportunities you choose. And uh, that is really the trick. If there is a trick, that's, that's, that's one of them. The second would be cap your downside or define your downside. And uh, you could look at the story of Richard Branson and Virgin Atlantic, how that was started and how he negotiated, for instance, with Boeing, I believe it was, to return planes that were leased if things didn't work out. And so he was, he was able to cap the maximum financial downside. And as soon as you can do that and you understand your worst case scenario and can hopefully quantify it, then the upside very often takes care of itself. That's not true in relationships, but meaning intimate or personal relationships, the upside does not take care of itself. But in business, that can be hardwired or enabled to have an advantage, a comparative advantage in playing through, say, informational advantage, which I had for early stage startups when I lived in Silicon Valley. So those, those would be a few thoughts. Next question, Charles Johnson, what core concepts and philosophies would you teach your hypothetical child so she could 10x your success? What definition of success did you just use? I don't like this word success uh, because it's so overused to have become meaningless. Uh, there is no agreed upon definition. And that makes conversations using that word very dangerous. Uh, also true with words like God or you name it. There are, there are dozens and hundreds and thousands of these words that are routinely used. But if you were to look at two or three people having an awful violent debate about something or just a heated debate about one of these words, if you asked each of them how they define the term, they would be different. So they're, they're having different conversations in their own heads, <laughs> uh, fighting with empty jackets uh, in, in a sense. So that's pointless. Uh, success is really not the word I would use, but if I wanted a her, and in this case, since you used she, to be highly capable and intelligent, in the sense, if we want to look at general intelligence as the ability to adapt and solve problems, another way to think of it would be to learn and solve problems, to be an autodidact, then there are really two key, if we want to call it concepts, that I would focus on. One is actually more of a philosophical framework, and the second is more of a toolkit, but they reflect the micro and macro in both directions, and hopefully I'll make clear what I mean by that. The first comes from a friend of mine, Mike Maples Jr., a very successful entrepreneur and investor who's been on the Midas list. And I recall at one point, we were on a hike, and I asked him what advice he would give to a new parent. 
or someone thinking about becoming a parent. And we talked about quite a few things, but the one that stood out that I'll mention now is he effectively said, the most important thing is to teach your kids to be optimists, to train them to be optimists, because without that, you're lost. With the ability to see the silver lining, to see the benefits of even a very dire situation, you can at least look for and see solutions. And if you conversely have a pessimistic lens, you could look at the same situation and see only problems. So number one is really making a concerted, consistent effort to train your kids to be optimists. That's number one. Number two, and this might sound strange coming from me, is coding, learning to code. And I use coding even though I'm not a coder, because from what I've seen in my friends, and I know a lot of friends who are programmers, coders, it is a very, very effective, quickly iterative way to develop structured thinking and problem solving using a portable toolkit. And every one of those words I pick very carefully. And one way to think of it is that good coders are good scientists. Very good coders are very good scientists. They're good at trying to replicate. They're good at trying to falsify. They're good at applying constraints. And uh, the best coders I've met also search for elegance and find beauty in code, much like poetry. There's a certain economy that is respected. Uh, I would, perhaps in a different age, have said science and science within the confines of research or academia, but that can be very stifling and very bureaucratic. And I wouldn't want to push her into that type of environment. I think that coding as a skill set is very rapidly deployable. It's mobile. You do not need an expensive lab or research assistance for which you need to apply to the NIH for grants and so on to fund. Uh, coding is very expedient, very practical. So coding would be one. I think that would also teach efficiency. Right? So we have got optimism, coding. I don't code. Uh, I would like to learn to code or rather put a better way. Learn is so sloppy. It's very, very uh, nebulous. I would like to do a coding boot camp of some type. I, I think it would it would add some some connections between synapses in my brain that would be uh, fun at the very least, probably exhausting and also beneficial, given my exposure to natural language. So we've got optimism, coding, and then the the last one that I took a note on is music. And I initially put down art. This is for aesthetic appreciation and observation, developing skills of observation. And I remember speaking with Ed Catmull, president, or at least then president of Pixar on the podcast. And he went from, I believe, physics, or rather art to computer science. He went from art to computer science, if, I'm getting, if memory serves me correctly. And he said something along the lines of, people think that's a very strange switch, but it's not because... I think it was physics, actually, art to physics. In both cases, you are learning how to see. Drawing is not how to move your hand. 
It is learning how to see. Painting is not learning which colors to dip the paintbrush in. That's certainly a downstream effect, but ultimately you need to be able to see. So that would be the benefit of visual art. I think that music also helps to cultivate perception and awareness and paying attention. It happens to be auditory. The reason I put down music instead of art, I could certainly also have art, but a lot of people, myself included, uh, drop art after, say, high school or college. And my hope would be that I could introduce my daughter, in this case, to music that is collaborative, right? Some type of music that she is able to use with friends or in front of friends, around a campfire, that type of thing, so that it travels with her throughout life. And unlike coding, which can be very solid, Derek is the next question. Uh, when all is said and done and it's lights out for good, what do you want people to remember about you and what you've done or are going to do? In essence, what would you want your eulogy to be? Uh, I don't think all too much about legacy, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I focus on legacy, but I don't think much about it. This, that might sound strange, but uh, I try to do things that will have some lasting impact. But we mentioned Naval, or I mentioned Naval earlier. Uh, he's also fond of asking, and I think he did this in our initial podcast. It's like, how many Sumerians do you know? How many Babylonians do you know? Entire civilizations viewed as the pinnacle of achievement of humankind at the time, erased, turned to dust. So I have no, I have no uh, delusions about the persistence of, of my legacy as such. But what would I want my eulogy to be? Something along the lines of he created thousands or hopefully millions of learners who are better than he was. That's it. My goal with almost everything I do is to try to make myself obsolete as quickly as possible. I want people who read, say, The 4-Hour Body or Tools of Titans or any of these books that have what seem like outrageous examples of doing a lot in very short periods of time, whether that's physical change, building companies or otherwise, I want readers to pick that up and do something better. And with, with every book so far, from the 4-Hour Workweek all the way through to Tribe Mentors, I've seen that, which makes me happy because that's my goal. So there you have it. All right. Uh, I'm going to answer one more on the submitted questions, and then we're going to go to live Q&A. But first, I'm going to have a sip of this wine. And I'll show the label to people who are here on video. And then I will read it for those who are joining us, maybe at some later date, audio only. This is Zarate from, it looks like El Palomar, El Palomar, El Palomar winery, and it is Albariño. It's quite nice. This is a gift, and I'm digging it. So there you have it. Tim Ferriss drinking white wine. What the hell has the world come to? Question from Brandon Beckett. And I'm gonna. this is a long one, so I'm going to read it quickly. You mentioned briefly that you have lost some people close to you recently. I've been lucky enough to not have lost many people, but a recent loss just utterly destroyed me to the point where I was physically ill for two months. Despite practicing stoicism and mindfulness and exercising, I really was not prepared for this, and I don't know how to prepare for it to better handle it next time. I understand this is personal and not fun to talk about, but my question is, how do you deal with losing someone close? Any tips, resources, or personal stories on learning to handle loss that have worked for you? Number one, 
I would recognize that it is more than okay. It is natural and I think healthy to grieve and to mourn. So you shouldn't view that as a defect of your character or a problem to be solved necessarily. And I say necessarily because there are books and other things that I think can give you perspective that allow you to metabolize it, perhaps the loss of, of someone close uh, in uh, a more fluid way. The first is on grief and grieving. This is a book that was recommended to me by Matt Mullenweg after he lost his father. Matt's a very dear friend of mine, lost his father very unexpectedly, and he wished he had read the book before his father passed. So I think On Grief and Grieving, that's the title of the book, is very useful for preparing yourself for the inevitable losses that you will face. We're all going to die. It's morbid, but it's reality check that everyone you love will die uh, unless we happen to solve the immunity <laughs> immortality elixir sometime soon, which I would not bet on. And uh, there, there's tremendous, tremendous value. There's tremendous value in realizing that because it increases the perceived value of the time that you have left with the people you care about. There's an essay I highly recommend called The Tail End by Tim Urban. It really puts it in perspective. And I think the number that's used is, at least for Tim, what he noticed, looking at average lifespans and so on, that if, if he lives to be 90 years old, which is already pushing it and quite an assumption, and if his parents live long enough that they are alive while he's in his 60s, I believe is how he put it, that by the time he graduated from high school and left home, he had spent 93% of all of the hours with his parents that he would ever spend with them. In other words, from the graduation of high school until their deaths is uh, 7% of the total hours that you will spend with them. And uh, that really put things in perspective for me. So that, that prioritized blocking out time with family well in advance, very important. Spending money on that, very important, if necessary. And I would surmise that many of the regrets people have or the f feeling of incompleteness or life interrupted that they experience when someone close to them dies is because there are things they wanted to say that they didn't say. There are things they wanted to be heard that weren't heard, and so on. Uh, and the, the tail end puts the timeline into such perspective that it helped me to take the initiative and, and have a lot of those conversations already with parents, with my brother, with close friends. And I don't hesitate to say, this sounds perhaps cheesy to some people, but love you. Much love to you and yours. Love you, bro. I'm really happy that you're in my life, to friends and so on. I, I'm, I'm, I used to be very sparing with the word love, and uh, I am no longer that way. Uh, the other piece, which I'm not advocating for, I always have to give this preface, because I'm not a doctor, I don't play one on the internet, and I do not recommend you do anything that is illegal in your jurisdiction. But psychedelic experience also, I think, gives you a lens into what people may experience when they die. And if you look at Imperial College of London, they've, they've looked quite closely at the 
comparison of intravenous DMT, that's NN-dimethyltryptamine, and near-death experiences. And they map very closely. I'm not recommending that you do IV DMT, by the way. I think that one can, and many people have had, experiences like that uh, under the influence of many of the classic psychedelics. Uh, there are risks involved, obviously, but my past personal experiences with some of these compounds have led me to be much less worried about dying, which it turns out is a rather common side effect, uh, including with patients who are suffering from life-threatening diagnoses with cancer, for instance. And uh, that's the last piece that I'll add to that. And with that, let's jump into the live questions and another sip of wine. When is the next in-person meetup, Vince? The short notice movie screening was great for people in Austin, but tough for the rest of us. I'm hoping to do more of those as I travel around. It's a lot of fun. Robbie Wade, what have you learned about love since being in your latest relationship? How do you tackle society's binary options? Uh, well, binary options, I kind of throw out as, as a matter of course. Uh, it's very rare when someone says, you can do A or B, that that is true. There's almost always a C or a D or an E or an F option. They might not be options that are attractive, but they're always options. Um, so if you don't like your situation, you have options. You always have options. You just might not like those options, but never forget that you have agency. You do have options. You do have the ability to choose. That's part one. Uh, learn about love. I would say that... Uh, this and this this reminds me of the second point that Mike Maples Jr. made to me about parenting. So number one, you might recall I said earlier was teach your kids optimism. Number two was remember that they don't owe you anything. You chose to bring them into the world, not the other way around. Uh, or I should say, they didn't ask. You, you get super metaphysical about this, but they didn't ask to be brought into the world. You brought them in. They don't owe you anything, and uh, their job is to receive love not to give love. And I think that what I've certainly learned for myself is that for love to permeate my relationship, say with my current girlfriend, the fastest way to get to a saturation point where I feel like we are in a, in a, in a constant uh, flow of, of love, that there's a lot of the things that surface in, in the perceived absence of love, insecurity, etc. To prevent that, all I have to do is try to express love and feel love and gratitude for love. If I do those things, the receipt of love as explicitly demonstrated by my girlfriend becomes less important. She's very demonstrative anyway, so I'm, I'm in luck with that. But by doing all of those things, I can tangibly get the benefits of love and not be dependent on being given it in very obvious ways, like an oxygen mask. I don't need the oxygen mask if I focus on the giving. Maybe that is a very dissatisfying answer, but that's, that's the best I can do right now. Uh... Yub you, do I drink beer? I don't drink beer. I uh, have enjoyed beer in the past, especially when I was pretty poor and ended up in Munich at one point. And the, the bottled water was something like five euros and the liters of beer were one. So I drank them even though I get a semi-allergic reaction. <laughs> but I, I don't drink much beer these days. All right. 
Has my morning routine, this is from Gunasai Garapati, has your morning routine changed in recent times? If so, what's, what are the new additions? Uh, yes, it has, it has changed recently because I'm on book deadline. And when I am on book deadline, uh, per Neil Gaiman on the podcast, the closer to Groundhog Day I can get with my days, the more productive I am. Therefore, my often lengthy morning routines where I wake up and do the meditation and the five-minute journal and morning pages and so on and so forth has been replaced with writing. And I, I really try to win the morning to win the day. And uh, th this is something that I've heard echoed by Gary Keller, who's co-author of The One Thing, for instance, and many other people. I these days wake up much earlier than usual. So I'm waking up around 6.30 and I then throw on the electric kettle to boil water or get it more or less to 190, so not boiling. Then I go take my supplements for the morning and come back. The water's ready to go. I take chaga, chaga mushroom powder, which I have from Four Sigmatic. And then a teaspoon of soluble yerba mate tea from a brand, I believe it's called oh, am I getting Mate Leo? Mate Leo. Leo is lion. I'm sure I'm mangling that in Portuguese. But it's a it's a soluble yerba mate that I really like. And I mix that together. I have uh, I take that along with a thermos of hot water and I walk to my outdoor patio where I'm sitting right now with my triangular wooden table, which you can see on Instagram, put it up in the last week or so as my office, and I immediately get to work. Uh, if I wake up earlier for some reason, I might do a 20-minute meditation, but otherwise I come right out and I have a big whiteboard easel with my chapters or writing pieces that I'm working on for that day, and I, I immediately began working on the writing. That is ideally first on paper. So I will have printed out drafts that I worked on the day before. And I'll do editing on paper. And then I'll jump into the laptop to make those edits. And that goes from, say, 6.30 to 9.30 or so, maybe 10 o'clock. At that point, I exercise. And that could take the form of a class. That could take the form of cycling. That could take the form of weight training, generally something endurance related. Also, uh, if the weather's nice, I'll get out into the sun. That's from say 10 to 1130, something like that. Have lunch and then it is back to writing. And in the afternoon, that would be up until I would say five or six, taking a break every hour or so for ping pong for five minutes. And I use it a timer with one of my researchers will play. And then we wrap up around, say, 7 o'clock. Dinner's at 7.30, whether at a restaurant or cooking. And dinner, maybe a sauna in a barrel sauna for, say, 10 to 20 minutes with cooling off in the pool in between rounds. Bed with a Marpac Dome white noise machine and the temperature set to maximum 70 degrees. Bedtime, wake up, rinse and repeat. That's what the day looks like. Tutus, I think, 
Tutus, tutus and toes. Do you believe in the law of attraction and abundance thinking? This is, this is a, a very fair question. I believe that the questions you ask yourself create a lens through which you view the world and that we all have selective attention and that there are different ways to choose what you select to see. Much like when you buy, say, a new car, if you happen to buy a, could be anything, a Tesla, a certain model Tesla, chances are you're going to go driving and you will see Teslas everywhere. You will now notice all of the Teslas that were already there that you had just allowed to pass through your vision unnoted before. The abundance thinking law of attraction secret camp, I think, goes a little off the rails when they posit that if you simply put a mantra out into the world or a vision board, that all those things are going to manifest automatically. Uh, and despite all the crazy shit that I talk about and uh, all the, the, the psychedelic experiences and so on, that particular breed of law of attraction, magical thinking, I think is, is very reckless and generally unproductive. Uh, but if you say, look at the four books I recommend at the back of the four-hour work week as the four fundamental reads or something like that, one of them is The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. And one could read that book and say, well, wait a second, this is all the stuff that the law of attraction, abundance thinking people talk about. It is, and it is very much focused on uh, actionable next steps and how you take that and translate it into a plan that you can implement. Uh, so uh, I would say yes, on one hand. I, I do think that abundance much like the book of the same title by Peter Diamandis, the chairman of the X Prize, uh, is is a good default setting. Looking for solutions instead of complaining about problems. That's Molly, my lovely pooch, barking in the background. She's decided the barking is really fun in the last few months. Uh, so abundance is a good default setting, and I do think, as mentioned earlier, that training yourself for optimism has a whole host, I mean, innumerable benefits. Uh, but the belief that you can put together a vision board and that the world is going to give you everything you want or something along those lines, I think, is uh, not likely to pan out very well. So that's that. Let's see here. Andrew, what's a good way to get your network started if you've neglected it for, say, dot, 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 30 years, question mark? <laughs> Uh, I would, I would Google how to build a world-class network in record time, which is a presentation I gave at South by Southwest. That will tell you exactly how I'd go about doing it. Elian, if I'm getting your na name right, did I become more nurturing since I got Molly? Uh, yes, I would say absolutely. And I become less self-centered, which I think is probably the prerequisite. Not that I was a complete uh, asshole beforehand, I hope not, uh, but we are all self-centered in the sense that we focus on the self. We are the, the lead actor or actress in our own movie. And having a dog, for me at least, has uh, forced me to constantly consider the needs of 
someone or something outside of myself. And it has also uh, forced me to contend with messes of all sorts. If my dog gets diarrhea in the middle of the night and shits all over my room, which has happened, I had to have carpets removed. It makes no sense for me to get furious with my dog. The dog doesn't want to shit on the carpet. Uh, Molly doesn't. She's not doing that to exact revenge upon me. She doesn't have thumbs. She can't open the door. Can't go outside and spray paint the the uh, the, the nearby shrub or whatever. So it's also been a really good mirror for me, in the sense that I'm able to look at my reaction to things that are outside of my control. That's particularly helpful when you have dear innocent Molly who would never deliberately do anything to upset me or anger me. Uh, so it's it's been wonderful practice and uh, a wonderful practice, I should say. And uh, she's she's certainly had a, a, a comprehensively wonderful effect on my life. But if you are thinking of getting a dog, number one, please consider adopting. I've, I adopted Molly. There are a lot of dogs that need adoption. And number two is don't get a dog if your plan is to fit it around everything else in your life. Get a dog if you can say, I'm going to get a dog and it's so important to me that I help this dog have a wonderful life and therefore help increase the likelihood of me having a wonderful life that I'm going to fit everything around the dog. I'm going to change my schedule. I'm going to, I'm willing to change my schedule. I'm willing to spend money. I'm willing to do da, 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 da to ensure this dog gets exercise and has the life it should have. And I've, I've decided that that is the big rock I'm putting in my jar. And then there are the smaller stones in the sand. But the dog goes in first. It's not the last thing that is left over and it gets the table scraps of life. That's my two cents. And if you want more on training and so on, thinking about all this, Susan Garrett is a fantastic dog trainer and also a uh, spectacular agility competitor with dogs was on the podcast. So you can find her. She's fantastic. She's just exceptional. All right. Uh, Jen, Daniel, what did you do for Lyme disease? That's also a question that was in the submitted questions that were selected by my team. So I'll answer that. Uh, Also from Jen. So congratulations. I saw both. The short answer is that I did a proper cycle of doxycycline, which is an antibiotic. And uh, the mistake I made was that I waited for symptoms to appear. I spent time in a number of locations that have incredibly high tick density. And uh, they are the hot spots on the CDC, the Center for Disease Control maps. And I grew up in one of those environments on Long Island. And the local belief was you get bitten by a tick, you wait. If you don't get a bullseye rash, you don't have Lyme disease. If you do get a bullseye rash, then you go into the doctor and get medication. The problem is, by the time you get a bullseye rash, you already have Lyme disease. Similarly, or I shouldn't say similarly, on the other side, if you don't show a bullseye rash, that does not mean that you have not contracted Lyme disease. Something like 20 or 20 to 30% of the people who contract Lyme disease do not display some type of dermatological response like that. And I was one of those people. The doxy was, I think, necessary. Didn't have a demonstrable effect on my day-to-day living. But ketosis did. Going into ketosis and getting into deep ketosis, meaning, say, at at least two and a half millimolars per day is measured on the precision extra device. 
made by Abbott Labs was what like that. As soon as I got to say two millimolars, I felt like a different person. And that brings up all sorts of speculation and theories about what Lyme disease might do to the brain. Is it glucose metabolism when you give it an alternate fuel source like ketones? Uh, perhaps also, say, in the case of Alzheimer's disease, which some people call brain diabetes, uh, you see this dramatic, in some cases, in my case, cognitive shift, where I felt like old Tim uh, for for all intents and purposes overnight. And uh, staying in ketosis for a few weeks and then coming back out to lower carbohydrate for a few months was what seemed to have saved me. Could be regression to the mean and just the passage of time. I don't know. But I, I have seen ketosis have beneficial effects for um, a number of close friends who have contracted Lyme disease. One thing I will say is that Lyme disease is very poorly understood, and there are often co-infections like babesiosis and other things. So it's, it's, it's a really wily variable to figure out. But those are my thoughts. Or I shouldn't say my thoughts. Those are my experiences. Daniel Campos, do you take any supplements, medication for anti-aging, metformin, NAD, etc.? I do. T- I, I do uh, experiment with NAD on occasion, mostly because the the penalty is very minor. Side effects are are are, are very minimal. Uh, metformin, I would consider. I haven't used. I have used metformin before, glucophage, but uh, I have not used it for many years. I used it way back in the day, 96. That's when I tried metformin for the first time. So go look at, look at, look at, look at the, uh, the history books for that. That was a long time ago as far as metformin conversation goes. Uh, rapamycin would also be of interest to me. Uh, it's, it's quite challenging to figure out what type of human dose to use for purposes of longevity and I'm working on that. Or I should say, rather, I have very close friends who are working on that. So I'm waiting to see what they, as the first monkeys shot into space, figure out. I'm happy to be the 10th or 100th monkey shot into space and not the first, which I think is a good policy in general. All right. Uh, Looking at some comments here, uh, after my mention of ketosis, Ash, uh, it looks, has had a similar experience with Lyme and ketosis. Uh, going on the ketogenic diet, as per your interview with Dom D'Agostino, helped my symptoms, especially the neurological ones, more than anything else. That was my personal experience, too. No guarantees. Your mileage will vary, but there you go. Galvin Kennedy, a few people have suggested that I answer your question. Any books or tips on breaking up with long-term underperforming business partners? This is a big topic. Uh, I would say take a look at... Uh, Hacker News, Venture Hacks. Venture Hacks is probably a better resource or at least easier to parse. That is a website created by Naval Ravikant. I feel like he's Candyman. I keep invoking his name. Naval Ravikant, Ravikant, Ravikant. Uh, Naval Ravikant and uh, his friend Nivi, also behind Angelus. And uh, that runs through what they wished they had known when they were navigating the the startup ecosystem. And uh, breakups among co-founders is very common. Uh, So I would imagine they have something written about that. Uh, Crucial Conversations is a book that I've heard recommended 
for navigating scripts or creating scripts for this type of conversation. Uh, ultimately, the breakup should ideally be navigated quite easily because the terms have been pre-decided. In other words, if you're trying to figure out the terms of your divorce agreement when you're getting the divorce, then you're a one-legged man or woman in an ass-kicking contest. You've, you've really fucked up. And I have fucked this up before. So I speak from personal stupidity as well. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the agreement that you craft, and you should always have an agreement, with a business partner is really only most valuable for disagreements and for the worst case scenario. So you should have your termination clause very carefully vetted. And if that has been carefully vetted, then the difficulty is more emotional in con asking questions or conveying the desire to break up uh, than it is procedural or legal. Right. So if the logistics, the process, the the cost of breaking up with them, the terms have all been predefined, and uh, you can certainly take that forward into your next relationships, then uh, the difficulty is primarily emotional and and uh, not related to the specifics of implementation. In which case, uh, I would suggest that uh, you read my next book. I'm working on a book about exactly this type of stuff that I'm hoping will come out in the next few months. So I'll have more on that soon. But it literally was just working on something related to that today. So I hope to have much more to share. In the meantime, uh, books like The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer could help you to find resources or mentors, people who could advise on this type of conversation. Uh, but uh, for the low-hanging fruit, see if Venture Hacks has something. If not, I would suggest looking on Quora and uh, Hacker News because there are so many breakups among startup founders. And since techies like to post and publish and share, you're just going to find that sector overrepresented online. So you might as well go fishing where most fish are hanging out. All right. I'm going to do one more question here on the live feed, and then I am going to go back to the questions that you guys submitted. Philip Sierpinski, how would you go about overcoming an addiction? Uh, if one is a diagnosed sex addict, how would you approach it? Sex addict, I can't speak to specifically because I just I'm the more I'm in the more is better camp with sex. I know that is probably very naive when someone is genuinely sex addicted, but can't speak to that specifically on the topic of addiction. However, I would say listen to my podcast with Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate, Hungarian born, uh, Vancouver based, I believe still uh, is an expert in addiction and wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. But if you watch my podcast with him, Gabor, G-A-B-O-R, M-A-T-E, last name. It's on YouTube as well if you want to watch the video, which gets pretty uncomfortable at points, so it's fun to watch. I think that conversation delves into addiction more than any of my other podcast episodes. I would start there, and then the resources and so on recommended in that, I think, will we'll take you to places that will be helpful. Question from Jared Rieger. What books do you recommend for someone right before they're under major life change? 
first big job for me specifically. Let me pause for dramatic effect. I would recommend two books in the following order. The 80-20 Principle by Richard Koch, K-O-C-H. And the second book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie. Those are two great books. There's another one that I haven't read in forever. I think it's How to Be a Star or How to Be a Star at Work. This is a book that was actually given to all new hires at a few companies I respected when I graduated from college in 99 or 2000. I was on the five-year plan, let's not forget, because I took a year off. I found that helpful at the time, but I, I certainly think that the three books I might give you, I'm going to add one to the list, would be The 80-20 Principle by Richard Koch, K-O-C-H, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie, and then a book I've already mentioned in this Q&A, The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. That's where I would start. Next question, and this one definitely deserves a sip of wine, so bear with. This is from Anthony. As a fellow balding man, I'm interested to hear about how you have processed your hair loss mentally and how much it did or did not affect you. You know, I looked at this question and I wasn't sure how helpful it would be, but here is the truth. (laughs) Number one, I have probably more private messages, DMs, social media notifications from men agonizing over this than anything else. And number two is it was hard for me. It really was. And in part because it caught me really off guard. I remember it very, very specifically. So if you got the widow's peaks, right? If you're losing hair this way, you can track it. But I never see the back of my head. And that's where I started. And I remember very clearly in 2004, I was in Germany. For those of you who read the four-hour work week, I went to London, then Ireland. I bounced around. I ended up in Germany at one point. And at that point, I had hair. It's kind of spiked, sometimes slicked back. It's just a, a very long island haircut. (laughs) And I remember hanging out with this German family at a barbecue and someone took a photograph of me from behind and it got developed something like a week later. And I saw the photo and clear as day, I was losing my hair on the back of my head and I had no idea. And I really didn't know what to do. It certainly bothered me. And, uh, you know, for a while I would keep the hair, keep the hair, keep the hair. And Fortunately, in high school, and even before that, as a wrestler, I had shaved my head. And I always found it very convenient. It never really bothered me. So there was a point where I simply decided, you know what? I don't want to be that guy who's combing over his five bunches of hair on one side each morning, fooling himself, but fooling no one else. I don't want to be that guy. I'm not into the the power donut look. Uh And it simply came down to saying, you know what, let me turn this this bug into a feature and just shave my head. And I I will say this much, that I don't think, I've never met a woman who's like, I'm into balding men. And again, this is very blah-bitty-blah, heteronormative, guy-to-guy, if you are a heterosexual who's worried about women, responding to your loss of hair. I've never met a woman who's into balding men, who's like, oh, I love balding men. I have met a lot of women who are into bald men, right? And that would be one sort of word of solace I would, I would offer. 
if you're in that awkward in-between space. I did consider different uh, drugs at one point. So minoxidil, topical, finasteride, other, uh, otherwise known as Propecia. Uh, I used Propecia for a little bit and it killed my sex drive. Killed my sex drive and affected my sexual performance. And I decided, you know what? All of this, you know, all this fancy bullshit is, if we're really being honest with ourselves, about mating advantage. And so for me, you know, <laughs> attracting women subconsciously most of the time and uh, being eager to have sex and being able to have sex the way that I like to have sex is more important than <laughs> trying to rescue the sort of clear cut uh, remnants of what used to be on the top of my head. So I was like, you know what? Let me just call a spade a spade in for a penny in for a pound. Let me take it off. And, uh, I've, I've never really looked back, uh, partially because I'm constantly on video. So if I suddenly showed up with a brand new spiffy afro or something like that, I would be heckled until my dying day. So I'm good with the bald. I will, I will tell you this, though. And for those of you on video, you can see this. The cue ball effect with this type of reflection on your head is a real thing. And uh, I would suggest, then, if you're doing any media or anything like that, that you get a basic makeup kit. This is, I cannot believe I'm talking about this, to deglaze your head uh, so that you don't blind everyone who is looking at a photograph or video of you. And I learned on media tours for book launches that it is naive to think that every place is going to have their own hair and makeup to do that for you. Uh, another pro tip related to that is that if you have a girlfriend, tell her about your makeup kit before she finds it. Because I've had the experience of having my ridiculous little head debuffing makeup kit, which is not much. It's like 10 bucks from a CVS. And uh, a girlfriend turning to me and be like, who is she? Who is she? And it turns into a big fucking thing that you don't need to deal with. So if you're bald and you're just trying to deglaze your donut head, Tell your girlfriend in advance if you buy any makeup. All right. There are powders, <laughs> says Carrie Bach. I don't know anything about makeup, but I know just enough to uh, save people the problem of glare when they're looking at my head. Today, I'm going on a trail. All right. Wow. People have a, a lot of brand suggestions for deglazing the donut. <laughs> Good Lord. This is why I get paid the big bucks, folks. Having this type of conversation while I'm drinking wine out on my back porch. For fuck's sake, what is this world coming to? All right, next question. Rob Maliki. Mate, not trying to knock you off early or anything, but buried or cremated, why and where? This is something I've been thinking about in the last few days, actually. Yeah, so it's, it's a timely question. For a long time, I thought about and uh, had decided I preferred cremation because it seemed final in some respect that might be gratifying for anyone who would survive me, family members, children, etc. And it seemed to be less hassle for everyone else who was left. I've since changed my mind about that. I think that I would like to be fed back to the earth. I think that it would be selfish of me after consuming so many plants, so many animals, 
so many resources as a human being not to offer my body back to the earth to be digested. That might sound very strange, but I think in many respects, that's a beautiful continuation of the cycle. So I would want to be buried ideally without a coffin. That may be illegal in the United States, I suspect it is. But I would, I would really like to be maybe wrapped in a shroud and buried without a coffin. I think that would be a good way to go. Rich asks, quote, what is your current opinion of staying in ketosis perpetually? Do you think it's okay or even better to stay in ketosis all the time? Or is it better to cycle in and out of ketosis? And that's from an overall health slash longevity viewpoint, not weight loss. There are better people to ask about this. Dr. Dom D'Agostino, with whom I've done two podcasts on ketosis, would be one. Peter Tia, MD, would be another. I think that uh, ketosis doesn't sit well with everyone. Or perhaps better put, following a ketogenic diet and entering dietary ketosis, consuming 70 to 80% or more of your calories from fat, which often ends up including dairy if you're not care- careful, which can affect all sorts of biomarkers. For instance, I'm very sensitive to any type of dairy. My lipid profile goes berserk. So I need to be very, very calculated with how I do ketosis. It it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't sit very well for everyone. And you should follow the report card, your your blood work as an indicator. But uh, there are many people who stay in ketosis for long periods of time. I know people who have stayed in for years. I think there are likely some health benefits to that. Uh, But what I can comment on is your question of, is it better to cycle in and out of ketosis from an overall health longevity standpoint, not weight loss? My current understanding, and this is going to be a partial answer to your question, is that one of the main benefits of cycling in and out of ketosis is to promote anabolism. So if you want to build muscle, Ketosis is actually a, a very suboptimal state for building a lot of muscle. If you want to get big and strong, you want insulin as a master hormone of sorts uh, to help store nutrients and trigger muscle growth, hypertrophy, and so on. The way you can accomplish that, uh, Dan Duchesne, D-U-C-H-A-I-N-E, uh, Mauro Di Pasquale, I believe is how you say his name, the anabolic diet, have designed various diets, all of which you could consider cyclical ketogenic diets, CKDs. And uh, that generally entails ketosis from, say, let's call it Monday to Friday, then a glycogen depletion workout on Saturday, followed by carb loading, let's just call it that, for an 18-hour period, something like that, then slowly segueing back into ketosis and in some cases using tools to accelerate that like alpha lipoic acid or other things i would not suggest injecting insulin unless you have doctor supervision and really want to play russian roulette that is a dangerous one but uh ckd gives you a window of uh high insulin response and carbohydrate loading to promote muscle growth. So if you want performance, the CKD, in and out of ketosis, I think it could be plausibly recommended. 
if you're looking for straight longevity, uh, which which I don't make a a sole focus of mine. That is staying alive for the maximum number of years. Uh, going in and out may not be the ideal path. Uh, but do you really want to stay in ketosis your whole life <laughs> or even for years at a time? Uh, it gets boring as hell. And uh, you can you can eat all the ketosis-friendly junk foods that have been created, but uh, you're eating also a lot of crap that isn't terribly nutrient-dense in most cases. <clears throat> so uh, it, it's really a question in my mind of functional health span, and Peter Tia has, has talked about this at, at some length. So I would suggest taking a look at my podcast with Peter Tia. There are at least two of them. He is brilliant and methodical and obsessive-compulsive, which is exactly what you want in a doctor who studies such things. All right, I'm going to do some more live questions. I know we are 15 minutes over time and that's okay. I'm going to go a little long for you guys because I love you bitches. And uh, this is fun. I'm having a good time. So (laughs) I'm just laughing at some of these comments. You guys are hilarious. Uh, All right, quick question. Michelle Martin, I struggle to fast because my heart races. Any ideas? Yeah, this is a cholinergic response, as I understand it. And uh, you can supplement with, or I have found, I'll speak from personal experience, that supplementing with electrolytes, for instance, taking slow mag, which is uh, magnesium throughout the day, as well as potassium, sodium, you could get an electrolyte supplement like noon, N-U-U-N, as long as you ensure that there are uh, no calories associated with it. Uh, But electrolytes can help quite a bit. All right, let's see. Looking for some more live questions. How did you decide to give us back our donations and give us Amazon gift cards? Uh, Because one of my goals for, I did a quarterly offsite with my team two months ago and reiterated that one of the goals was to surprise, one of the primary goals that I have is to surprise and delight my fans. And I thought about how to do that. And in the case of the supporters, so there are a few thousand of you who supported the podcast and everything else for the short-lived fan support experiment, I figured, what the hell? I can afford it. And uh, it's fun. It's something nobody does that I'm aware of. I've never heard of a single instance. So if somebody gave me nine ninety five a month and they got charged for two months, I'm going to refund their twenty bucks and then I'm going to give them an additional twenty for Amazon that they can use for anything. And by the way, anyone who's international, you can still use the Amazon.com website to order, but have it shipped to where you are. And if they donated a hundred or a thousand a month, same thing. So there are some people who donated a thousand a month. And they got charged for two months. They got $2,000 back and then $2,000 in additional Amazon gift cards from, uh, from me and my team. Uh, you know, life is fucking short. And I thought, it's not going to break the bank. Uh, I want to reward my 1,000 true fans or several thousand true fans. The 1,000 true fans is an expression borrowed from Kevin Kelly. If you haven't read that essay, I suggest you do at kk.org, 1,000 true fans. It's easy for me to do. I thought it'd be fun. I thought it would surprise people and hopefully delight people. 
And then when you go to Amazon and buy whatever you're going to buy over the next handful of months, you'll also be like, oh yeah, gift card, Tim Ferriss. So it's, it's like having a little jack-in-the-box with my shiny bald head popping up going, thank you, every time you go to Amazon and the gift card balance reminds you that I sent it to you. I saw no downside and a lot of fun and upside from it. So that's how I decided to do it. People are still sending me advice for products that I can use on my shiny bald head. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, uh, Galvin, can you get Neil deGrasse Tyson on the show? I would love to. I actually met him for the first time last week. I went to a live taping of Star Talk. It was awesome. Neil is an incredible guy. If you haven't seen his podcast, you should check it out or the TV show or anything he does. He's just hilarious and awesome and a lot of fun. Uh, anything special planned for podcast number 400? No, not right now. I, I haven't thought about it. I probably should, given the four shtick that I've somehow made a career out of. Uh, looking for more questions. Robbie Wade, what do you think of the saturation of masterminds and coaches? I think you should pay attention to people who have done what they're teaching. That's it, and can prove it. Uh, so I, I would really... Uh, there, there are many people out there who who teach and not and don't do or teach because they can't do or worse still misrepresent and claim that they're making six figures a month or a year or whatever and uh, are, are really just preying upon people because there's no means of verification. So I would say uh, that caution is the better part of valor when it comes to to coaches. Choose your influences very carefully. I mean, I've mentioned many, many, many times that one of my favorite quotes is, you are the average of the five people you associate with most. And if that is true, if we take that to be true, if you're taking advice from anyone who hasn't done what they are preaching, you are compounding all sorts of problems. And so I, I would simply say, if you're looking at a mastermind or a coach, you should ensure that you can verify whatever they are claiming they have done is true. That's it. And that will eliminate 95% of them out there. What are my thoughts on Ramit Seti, S-E-T-H-I? He's a close friend. Ramit's super legit. I've, I've always been very impressed with him. He has very, very good scripts for negotiating. And he walks the talk. I mean, the guy knows what he's doing. And I've seen his life. I've met his family, uh, meaning his wife and his brother and so on. I, I've, I've seen behind the curtain and uh, I found him very legit. I've never engaged with any of his products or anything like that. So I can't speak to any of his courses or anything along those lines. But uh, Ramit walks the walk. So I would... Uh, I would say that he is uh, very legitimate, but I'm not on any, any of his mailing lists or anything like that. I have no idea how many emails he sends out. No clue. All right. Ryan, how long did it take you to be consistently happy throughout your day-to-day -day life? Are you still working on it? I think trying stressing out about being happy every day will make you really unhappy. Uh, and there are a number of quotes out there that are along the lines of if you want to be happy stop striving for happiness i think there's 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 quite a bit of wisdom to that and uh, there's another one i think it's thoreau it might be emerson i always confuse those two they were buddies also which doesn't make it any easier but that if you if you stop searching for happiness 
and sit down every once in a while, happiness like a butterfly will land on your shoulder, something like that. But obsessing about happiness is a great way to be unhappy. Uh, so I think more about excitement and a feeling of purpose than I do happiness. And uh, that is because energy, state, emotional reactivity are all in flux. Yesterday, for instance, just yesterday was a very difficult day for me. I had, as I described earlier, my morning routine. My plan was to write for a good three or four hours. And I had a bunch of household emergencies, a number of technicians and carpenters and electricians show up. I have guests in my house and there were a number of things that required my attention that pulled me out. So I didn't get my writing done in the morning and it made me very, very agitated. Made me very agitated. Uh, and the, the whole day was just a shit show of distraction and fire drills. Uh, in the afternoon, I was like, all right, I'm going to make it up. I'm going to get in my hours. And then lo and behold, no dice. The universe had other plans and it, it was just a mess. So yesterday, I was, I was an, an, an emotional toddler and uh, my, my skin was very thin and the buffer that I had that would normally allow me to take a chill pill, not overreact to things, was worn thin. Today, totally different story. Today, I was able to follow my routine. I do like my routines, especially on a deadline. That's not unusual. And uh, got a good solid three, four hours in, in the morning, got a lot done. And honestly, after that point, everything else was gravy. I also got uh, exercise twice today. So that was a win. I don't stress about being consistently happy in every day, day to day, because that is just a recipe for unhappiness in my experience. All right, here's the quote that I was looking for from Carolyn Nickel. Uh, I guess. I don't know what the tones are on that, but that's probably how you'd say that in Chinese. Z-H-U-A-N-G-Z-H-I. Who knows? Happiness is the absence of the desire for happiness. That is really worth sitting on and contemplating. There's a lot. There's a lot to pull from that. Jay Bell, who are the strongest female voices, mentors, inspirations in my life? Well, not to sound cheesy, but I did des- dedicate my ooh, hello wine. Desicate. I did desicate, desicate my liver for my mother. No, I did dedicate my first book to my mom and dad. My mom taught me very early that marching to your own drummer was a good thing and didn't have the resources to buy a lot of new things, but had the creativity to expose me and my brother to a lot of things. So say if we ate chicken legs for dinner, which we did a lot. I mean, we ate a handful of meals over and over and over again, like TV dinners, chicken legs. So we had chicken legs and then we'd take the chicken legs and there'd be a little bit of meat or fat or gristle on these, these bones and she'd save those. And then the next day or that weekend, we would take these bones and go to uh, a pond or I guess it was the bay where we could tie a string around those bones and drop them into the water and pull them out with crabs and see crabs, look at them, etc. collect black sand using magnets and put them into jars and play with them. So she was very good at feeding curiosity and then supporting interests with books. We didn't have a budget for much, but we always had a budget for books, which is a brilliant line, by the way. So my parents told me that, my mom especially, and that made us 
my brother and I think about books. Books were this thing to be coveted. They were not homework, right? They were, they were something to be coveted, something we desired, something we wanted. The other main influence would be my girlfriend. She's, she's an excellent, excellent communicator and one of the most self-aware people I've ever met. And uh, she has shown me in many respects what being non-reactive looks like. If you're hearing a weird noise out in the distance, that's because I am on an outdoor patio and that is a gigantic owl. Uh, so I would say my mom and my girlfriend primarily. Uh, those would be the two mains. I'll stick with that for now. have a lot, plenty of female friends, but those, those are the two mains. All right. Am I a fan of Rick and Morty? Yes, I am a huge fan of Rick and Morty. <laughs> What's my favorite cryptocurrency resources? Uh, you know, I don't. I try not to think about cryptocurrency much. I do have money in cryptocurrency, but I delegate the decision making to other people because I have no confidence in my ability to operate in that sandbox with any type of advantage. Uh, all right, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this comment or comment on it just because I, I suppose I, I feel like putting a bullseye on my forehead comment is need more women on the podcast. I'll tell you what I need on the podcast. I need on the podcast, good people, no matter what their genitalia look like, no matter what their preferred or stated gender is, no matter what their race is, who have a lot of tactics to share. I don't think about preferably choosing men. Uh, and I also don't want to think about trying to recruit women, period, as a criterion at the top of the hierarchy. I, I don't think that I don't think about gender when I'm recruiting my guests at all. And I like it that way. Um, it's, it's not a factor. I just had a woman on the podcast you know, we, this, earlier this week. And uh, there, are, there are a lot of women in my books, Tribe Mentors was like 50-50. But I, I, I think that identity politics is a losing game. If we, if we read any history, that should be very clear. And there, there, I should be able to learn from a smart woman as much as a woman can learn from a smart man. And I do think that that has historically been the case for me. And you know, Julie Rice would be a great example. Right? I'm, I'm hoping to spend more time with her. Uh, who's been on the podcast, co-founder of SoulCycle. And it doesn't even enter my mind as a consideration. And I don't want it to become a preoccupation. But yeah, I get it. Look, I totally understand that that if you're a woman or if you are a film blank, that ideally you would have exemplars, people who can inspire you, who remind you of yourself, in a sense. Uh, but I, I would also hope that we're all striving to look for what we can learn from every person we encounter and to find the common ground. Um, so there you have it. Um, uh, there, there are more women coming. There are more women scheduled. But I don't want to apply some artificial constraint or to make gender preoccupation because it, um, it just isn't. Uh, and, I, and I don't want that to be. All right. Let's see here. Oh boy, our kids in the cards. We want a little Ferris. Well, we'll see about that. Uh, I'm I'm more interested in kids than I am in the legal institution of marriage. I'm not super excited about having the state 
<laughs> or federal government involved with my interpersonal affairs. But yeah, I've been thinking more and more about it. So we shall see. We shall see. Uh, how has moving to Texas affected your life, lifestyle, friendships? That's from Montgomery. All better. Everything's better. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say. Aside from Austin is the friendliest place I've ever lived. And I, I expect to be there for a long time. All right. What else do we have here? Ryan Combs. Uh, tips for determining whether one is better suited for entrepreneurship, as in running a company, or freelancing, more solo work. Start with freelancing. See how you like that. If you don't like freelancing, you're definitely not going to like running a company. So start with that. Do it in that order. Uh, right. What was it like to meet Rolf Potts? I've met Rolf a bunch. Rolf is hilarious. He's, he's a fun guy. For those who don't know, Rolf Potts wrote a book called Vagabonding. I think the subtitle is An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel, something along those lines. And it is uh, certainly about travel, but more broadly about a philosophy of life and improvisation that Rolf Potts describes very poetically. It's a great book and had a huge impact on me. That is that is one of the four fundamental reads at the back of the four-hour work week. I mentioned one already, The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz, and Vagabonding is yet another. And I enjoyed Vagabonding so much, I actually reached out to Rolf to produce the audiobook of Vagabonding, which you can find, I believe, at audible.com forward slash Tim's Books. I used to have a book club, an audio book club, just for the fun of it, because I want extra projects to occupy all my time. All right. This question from Matt. What do you think about the legal benefits of marriage? I think it's unfair that married people get tax benefits over single co-living. Yeah, I think it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah, period. Full stop. All right. Would I go to Mars? Well, as, as Jeff Bezos has put it, you know, before you go to Mars, spend a few years in Antarctica and see what you think, because Antarctica is a cakewalk compared to Mars. So I don't know. I don't know. I think I, I think I might prefer some type of Elysium-like habitat more than Mars. Uh, and as Jeff Bezos put it to a friend of mine, uh, he feels at least that Mars is a bad idea and that the last thing we need after conquering, or I should say escaping Earth's gravity is to deal with another gravity in another atmosphere. Uh, terraforming and all that is very, 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 very complicated. I mean, look at what we've done on the moon first, and then consider where you think we will go with Mars. But hey, the more options, the merrier. So I'm glad people are looking at it. All right. <laughs> are you able to sleep soundly when you're not alone in bed? Uh, it's tough, actually. <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I overheat very easily. So having somebody laying on top of me is difficult. Uh, but if I'm not entwined with someone else, I, I, I do find it quite easy to sleep. As long as my temperature is regulated, I don't have too many issues. Uh, it's from J-Bell. Do you feel you're making progress on healing childhood trauma? Hope you continue to share that journey. Yes, I'm going to be sharing a lot about that. Uh, and the book I discussed with Greg McEwen author of Essentialism, which is a great book. So my episode with him, McEwen is M-C-K-E-O-W-N, focused on a book about healing, which would be related to many things, including this childhood trauma, which I haven't gone into details about, but uh, some bad stuff, some bad stuff. So I, I absolutely plan on writing about that. And I think 
along with the blog posts, some practical thoughts on suicide, that it'll be the most important thing I've ever written. That's the hope. I want to do it right. Carrie, do you think it would be valuable to have those who have attempted suicide to talk to those who have lost family to suicide? Yes, I do. Question from Ryan. Did you always have something in your life you were excited about pursuing? Absolutely not. I've had long periods of anhedonia, inability to feel pleasure about anything at all. Uh, so no, uh, that's, that's not a constant. That's something that I've had to work for and work towards. It's, it's very much been a practice. It's not something that comes naturally to me at all times. Ryan, question, Tim, I do too. How do you battle anhedonia? I would recommend you look up the name George Sarlo, S-A-R-L-O, on Vice, and obviously follow all regulations where you live and find a professional to help. Uh, Hakomi therapy could also be very interesting to look at, which is a somatic, i.e. body or physical-based practice that is similar to mindfulness. And I know Hakomi professionals will say that I'm mangling this, but it's a good enough description, that it is a type of therapy that helps you to become more aware of what you are feeling in your body. And uh, I found it very valuable personally in that I think could help you to tune in to frequencies that will ultimately lead you to overcoming anhedonia. Jacob, uh, are you building any new habits right now? If yes, what's your process? Uh, waking up early. And uh, my process is... Uh, scheduling my day so that if I don't wake up early, I don't get my writing done. I have to wake up early. I have to wake up between 6.30 and 7, or I'm not going to have the critical block of time along the lines of the maker's schedule versus manager's schedule that Paul Graham has written about. Fantastic essay for those of you who have not read it. Uh, Elian, Tim, are you ever afraid you will slip back into depression? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it comes up. And uh, what I've tried to do is accept that that's going to happen and to identify less with it. So to make it more, I am feeling depressed or there is a feeling of depression versus I am depressed. And the book Awareness by Anthony DeMello, D-E-M-E-L-L-O. If you're going to read one book of all the books I've mentioned in this Q&A, pick up Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Uh, there are many chapters that help with what I'm describing. All right, I'm going to answer a handful of, of additional questions. It's uh, 9.45 roughly, so we've gone 45 minutes over time. I'll go for a little bit more. And then I think after all this talk of my girlfriend, I want to go find my girlfriend and possibly do a barrel sauna before bedtime since I do have more writing tomorrow morning. Ranjit, what Neil Stevenson's book do you like other than Snow Crash? Uh, <laughs> Neil Stevenson's great. That's N-E-A-L, Neil Stevenson. Uh, Snow Crash is, is, is amazing, but you already mentioned Snow Crash. So let's skip Snow Crash. And I would say Cryptonomicon. Cryptonomicon is a gigantic book, and uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it found me at the right time, I suppose. I just absolutely loved Cryptonomicon. So that would be my recommendation. Uh, skiing or snowboarding? Skiing most of the time, snowboarding on powder. Jacob, question, what would you be your go-to activity experience for a first date if your objective is to get to know someone quickly? Uh, hmm. I would take them out to dinner and I would, well, coffee date if it's like a first screening. But if you think someone is, is, a, is a decent prospect, dinner. And then I would say right up front, you know, please order whatever you want. This is on me. 
and you can see how they respond to that. And uh, I would still end up paying, but it, it's I find it informative to see how someone responds to just that opener, right? So that you're not covering that at the end of the meal. It's been covered in the beginning. And then you could ask, you could say, I went to a retreat. This is true for me. I went to a retreat and as a as a getting to know everyone exercise, they they had us go around in a circle and each person would say, if you really knew me, you would know dot, dot, dot. And they would fill that in. And so you do that with the person you're with. All right. So if you really knew me, you would know that. And then you offer something and you're like, all right, what about you? And then she goes or he goes or whatever. And then you say, all right. So you've done that. The next step is if you really, really knew me, you would know that dot, dot, dot. And you do that. And you can get some really deep, really uh, rarely heard stuff very quickly with that. So that that might be one approach. In terms of activities, uh, rock climbing, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I'm grasping for straws on that. What is your earliest childhood memory? My earliest childhood memory is of being an infant. And uh, my parents had rented their house to make money at one point. Some, some women in the background. Uh, my parents had rented their house for income at one point and were living in a tiny cottage. And I was there, the firstborn, and I had a horrible fever. And I was being cooled down in a sink and screaming my face off and looking at the ceiling and seeing devils and demons and monsters on the ceiling. That is my earliest memory. How fucking awful is that? But at least up to this point, that appears to be the earliest memory. Go figure. I'm not going to end this Q&A on that, though. What a fucking downer that would be. All right. Oh, nice. Steven. Steven Hicks. I teach at medical school. Uh, what is the best way to expose a high performer who's never failed at something to the concept of failure without destroying their confidence? Uh, that's a great question. I would say have them write something and uh, could be a report, could be an analysis, could be anything. And at least for say three rounds, just say, this isn't good enough. I would have expected more from you here. Take this back and do better and do that two or three times and uh, see, and then talk to them do a post-game analysis and talk to them about that after the fact. Uh, it's from Ash. Thank you for everything, Tim. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for everything, honestly. It's, there's, there is happiness and success all around you. And I, I realize I'm in a very uh, privileged and lucky position. Those are not the same thing, but I'm in both. And just the fact that I can sit comfortably and do this, just the fact that I can see this screen, just the fact that I can taste this wine, just the fact that I have people who are willing to read what I write or listen to what I record for this podcast, or the fact that I can hear the crickets and the owls and so on around me, that I am close to nature, I have access to nature. I mean, all of these things are, are miracles in a sense. And I certainly won the birth lottery. I mean, I was born white male in the United States. And there's a lot that goes with that. Uh, but I, I think about my parents dying. I think about the likelihood of them dying in the next five years, 10 years. I think about the tail end, the essay by Tim Urban that I recommended. 
I think about how much I would pay after my dog has died, Molly, to play with her on the front yard here where I'm sitting with some type of chew toy and to watch her as happy as could be. What would I pay after she dies? And she's going to die before I do, at least barring any type of unforeseen disaster on my part. After she dies, two years afterwards, or a year afterwards, a month afterwards, how much would I pay? And this is from Munib Ali, actually, in Tribe Mentors, to experience that, to re-experience, say, sitting in a hammock and throwing balls for Molly. A lot. I would pay a lot of money. A lot of money. I mean, a, a, an absurd amount of money. Uh, I think about these things to cultivate gratitude. It's easy to become an ungrateful cunt. It really is. It's, it's extremely easy to become an ungrateful cunt, especially if you spend too much time on social media where the sport of choice is complaining and bitching and moaning and talking about lack and scarcity and entitlement more than anything else. It's a very poisonous atmosphere. And if you are the app, the average of the five people you associate with most, well, we could chunk that down into hours, right? So forget about five people. Which groups are you spending the most time with? Are you spending more time with Twitter than with your two or three closest friends who would be a positive impact on you? If so, the trend line isn't going in the right direction from my perspective. Uh, so I'm grateful for a lot. I'm grateful for so much. And uh, on that, I think we're going to wrap up, guys. I think that's a good place to wrap up. I have a lot of love for all of you. It's incredible that I get to do this as some semblance of a job. I'm very, very lucky. And uh, I will continue to do all that I can to put together podcasts and books and so on that allow you, hopefully, not just to replicate what I've done, but to do so much more than what I've done and what I may ever do. That's my goal. And uh, with that, thank you all very much and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Many blessings to you and yours. Thank you again. Bye. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the, uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out. And just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. I've been talking about FreshBooks for years now, the all-in-one invoicing, payments, and accounting solution. 
Many entrepreneurs I know, as well as many contractors and freelancers I work with all the time, use it all the time. So I get to see FreshBooks on a weekly basis. FreshBooks makes it super easy to track things like expenses, project time, and client info, and then merge it all into great looking invoices. FreshBooks can save users up to 200 hours per year on accounting and bookkeeping tasks. I don't know about you, but I like to do as little of that as possible, so 200 hours is a lot of hours. FreshBooks is always releasing new features that make running your business easier. And here are just a few of the major upgrades they've made in the last 12 months alone. Number one, they've redesigned the time tracking feature to create a more intuitive time tracking experience. Number two, they know just how frustrating bank reconciliation can be, so they've automated bank reconciliation, removing the pain. Number three, they've added ACH bank transfers. That means you now have an even faster way to collect payment from your clients. It's easy to see how FreshBooks can grow with your business and also help your business grow. It just gives you more time to focus on growing the business as opposed to running the business and the admin stuff. They have plans to match your needs no matter the size of your business, from the basic to comprehensive, from small to big, and it all starts at just $15 per month. Right now, they're offering it my listeners, that's you guys, a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks. You can try it out with no credit card. No credit card is required. Just go to freshbooks.com slash Tim and enter Tim Ferris. it's two R's, two S's, in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash Tim and enter Tim Ferris in the how did you hear about us section. Check it out, freshbooks.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hiring can be hard, can be super, super expensive and very painful if you get it wrong. I certainly have had that experience multiple times. I've made a lot of mistakes and I am not eager to repeat any of them. So I try to do as much vetting as possible now on the front end. Today, with more qualified candidates than ever, but certainly more noise than ever, employers need a hiring solution that helps them find the right people for their businesses without wasting time, without wasting money. LinkedIn Jobs provides just that. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you specify that you're looking for so you can quickly find and hire the right person. They also look beyond work skills, so collaboration, creativity, adaptability to connect you with candidates who match your business perfectly. They have nearless, endless business-specific data points that help them to massage this and that which can help you to find the best fit. LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other insights that help LinkedIn paint a better picture of potential candidates. It's no wonder that great candidates are hired every eight seconds on average on LinkedIn. That's pretty wild. Every eight seconds. So find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on LinkedIn. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim for more details. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off your first job post. So check it out. LinkedIn.com slash Tim. Terms and conditions do apply.